lesson comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. Mark, the first chapter. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing along the, aside, alongside, excuse me, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, "Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men." And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. This is the gospel of our Lord. Well, I don't know about you. I don't know what you do when uh, times get like this. What I do, namely when the temperature gets below 30 degrees and it's still January and I know I got months to go, I start doing what I do every year at this time, which is looking at all the places I'd rather be online, right? All of those articles about the beautiful coast and the warm tropical places and the beaches, you can go sit and hang out, have a Mai Tai, a little umbrella. You know, everything's nice. It's not it's a long ways from here, it feels like. Uh, which is kind of funny that some of us do this. Uh, I was reading this interesting book over the last couple of years called The Last Resort, written by a Brooklynite, uh, kind of talking about the history of the seaside resort. Uh, and it may be a surprise to you, it was a bit of a surprise to me, that that was not really a thing for a long time. Uh, it's sort of a new thing in history. The places by the ocean were always places, they were workaday places, places where fishermen were, where the ne'er-do-wells were. You didn't really go to the ocean and look at it in this placid you know, sense and enjoy it. It was a place to be afraid of. It was a place that was fearsome. It was a place that was the beginning of perhaps the end of the world. I've always sort of loved this about the ocean. I was sort of an ocean child. The first four places I lived in the States were all on the coast. We spent a lot of time at the ocean and I still love to just stand there and look at it. It's terrifying, but it's also, it never ends. It just goes on and on. It's got a sense of romance to it for me, a sense of adventure, a sense of risk. If I were to go out there and just sail away, what would you see in the world? Out there, that's where there's new lands, there's new treasures, there's new things to explore. You can imagine this was especially true in the age of discovery before we'd mapped everything out. But the sea is still a place, of course, of risk and reward and adventure and romance. It's also a place of danger. It always has been. It's dangerous simply to try to be a captain out on the ocean. Even today, you read in the news today, I don't know how to pronounce it exactly correctly, but the Houthi people, because they're attacking ships and uh, trade, uh, ships that are doing commerce, they're having to leave the Red Sea and go all the way 4,000 extra miles around Africa now so they don't get shot at. And that means, I don't know what, your bananas or toothpaste are going to be more expensive next month, right? The ocean is this divide between us and other places. It's a thing that needs to be crossed, and we don't always know what's out there, what we're going to encounter, what kind of exchanges might be made. 
Again, new lands, new people, new riches. And so to cross the sea is in some sense to overcome a natural division, a physical and geographical one, but also linguistic, cultural, historical. And often, as you're out there crossing this divide, you get to do some important fishing on the way because you have to eat, right? Contrast the sea with land. Land is something that you can possess. It's something that you can build cities and therefore culture on. Land speaks to us of bloodlines, of kinship, of history, of ownership, of my soil, my land kind of stuff. It's an easy ground, you might say, for the ego to grow. Well, this is my people. This has always been my people's. This is what I'm going to defend and protect, and this is where I'm going to do my business. And you can ask permission to come in if you want. Maybe I'll let you on my terms. But the sea is something much less tameable, isn't it? Something more mysterious and ominous, out of control, something you can't exactly possess. It's often uncharted territory, as we say. It's a place where the ego goes to drown. (laughs) You know, just get on a boat and imagine how quick you lose your legs and uh, how quick you might lose your lunch over the side. It's the leveler of egos, this ocean. And this land versus the sea sort of dialectic comes up a lot in the story of God's work in the world through the pages of the scriptures, through the Bible. See, the land and the sea frequently are used in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, but here getting into the Gospels, to symbolize the division between God's least, last, lost little people that he chose to demonstrate his love to the world through Israel. They are often used in the scriptures, or they're often compared to the land. They're associated with the land. They have to leave a land and go to a promised land of right. And, uh, and it's uh, their, their kings, their leaders, were often actual shepherds, people that worked the land and worked livestock before they became the kings, and they were now to figuratively, figuratively shepherd the people in the land and to feed them on God's Torah and his land, and his, I mean, his rules and his laws. At the same time, they were pictured as a land in the middle of a churning sea of nations, and that's just what the word Gentiles means. In the scriptures, the word literally is just a translation. Gentiles means the peoples, the nations, right? So here is one little nation that God chose in the middle of all these other nations. And these nations symbolize the sea that is threatening and ominous. And a a divide you wouldn't want to cross. You don't want to go out there and see what monsters are hidden at the end of the map. It's the nations. Here, Psalm 144. Reach down your hand from on high, deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners. See how they're connected there? Rescue me from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners. Or Isaiah 17. Woe to the many nations that rage. They rage like the raging sea. Woe to the peoples who roar. They roar like the roaring of great waters. Or Isaiah 60. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. The riches of the nations will come in. The sea is all that's out there, outside of God's little people. Again, it's a place to be afraid of. Even just think about maps. I will do one defense of some uh, pre-modern people here. it's, it's been shown that not all people always thought that the earth was flat. 
a lot of those are just symbolic maps, right? And the way that they drew the maps was that it's, you go out and that this is what we've mapped and at the end it drops off and who knows what kind of chaos is out there. And that's why they pictured Leviathan and dragons and all these weird animals at the edge. It's scary. It's a place to be afraid of, but it also, for them, was because they were people to be afraid of. Strange, otherworldly, not like us kind of people out there on the other side of this divide. This is why you heard the story of Jonah himself. Israel was not repenting. They were not following God's law. They were not wanting to live in the land under his law and his rule. They weren't changing their minds about anything according to his mindset. And Jonah sent out to God's enemy, the great empire that's growing of Assyria, and he sent to Nineveh, and he says by the end of the book, he's like, I knew you were going to show mercy. That's why I didn't want to go there. I hate those people, right? So he's sent over there. He jumps off into the sea. A whale swallows him up, brings him, dumps him on the, on the shore, and he has to preach, and he complains and whines the whole time and pouts because he knows they're going to repent, and they do, and God shows them mercy. He was forced by God to cross a divide. He didn't want to cross because he knew God would show mercy to those scary enemies, the monsters out there at the edge of the map of God's people. And so Jesus shows up here, and in Mark, you know, the very first things we saw him do last week was get baptized. The first voice you hear is that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He comes up out of the waters of baptism, and a dove lands on him like this new creation, this new land with Noah after the flood, this new beginning And he's there, and he's sent into the wilderness. We didn't read that last week. That's what happened between that and our passage this morning. Between the baptism, he's sent out into the desert, into the land, to fight with all the enemies of following God, Satan and all of his temptations, right? And he does what God's people didn't do, which is to obey and obey and obey until Satan goes away. And now he comes, and he begins his public ministry. We see Jesus walking immediately next to a sea, a sea of Galilee, and yes, it's an inland sea, but if you saw any pictures of Lake Superior or Lake Michigan in the last week when that storm came through, you know that these seas can get rough and scary. Later, the disciples, of course, would beg Jesus to calm it because they were afraid that they were going to die and drown in these giant waves and in the swell. And so Jesus comes next to the sea, and he calls people who are on the water, in the water, and he calls them out of the water off of physical boats on a sea to go on a journey with him which will be largely over land, occasionally over water, to encounter new and amazing things. It's almost as if to say Jesus is flipping the script here a little bit, and the people of Israel that he's going to on land are actually the people who are far from God, who have this division between themselves and God. The the script has been flipped a little bit. And Jesus is saying, come off this ocean, fishermen, and come with me. We're going to go on to land. We're going to cross new divides. We're going to have a new journey. We're going to go into a place that feels scary and threatening and unknown and new and adventurous to you. Come with me. New lands, new people, new riches, new exchange, new treasures. Come on a pilgrimage into the unknown. Right? In verses 1 through 13, which I just alluded to, he came out of the water. He fought off, if you will, these pirates and was looking for a crew. And just to remind you the text we read a moment ago, it says John was just arrested. So already his cousin's arrested. He's going to be beheaded. This is a threatening time to be trying to follow God in the Roman Empire. Jesus came into Galilee. He proclaimed the good news of God. And the good news was this. Hey, guess what, guys? The time is here. 
The bell just went off. The alarm just hit. The kingdom of God is here. It's right here. And so I want you to repent. And that word literally just means to change your mind. To metanoia. Change your mind about everything. Change your mind and believe this good news. That the kingdom is here. That the time is here for the kingdom. To overcome the kingdoms of man. It says he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. He says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of man. Fishers of human beings. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. He does the same thing with James and John. They leave their nets and their father in the boat. And they follow him. Now this is interesting because on the one hand, you start to picture this, this man, Jesus, just walking around going, this is the way, right? Kind of Yoda or whoever, you know, Mandalorian. This is the way. And everyone's like, yes. And they leave their whole lives and follow him. Well, on the one hand, yes, his charisma, whatever was attractive about him, his compelling way of life, the authority it said he would speak with and act with made people think this is a man on a mission. This is maybe a person associated with the divine. This might be our Messiah or king, certainly perhaps a prophet. We want to be on his side. There's something foreign about him, something different, something that came from another land, if you will, something exciting we want to be a part of. And yet I want you to hear this, and this is perhaps one of the main points this morning. When you think about Jesus just this way, it's easy to downplay his humanity, especially in the book of Mark, which is kind of quick, rapid fire, all action, no teaching uh, gospel, right? Mostly. His humanity can be sort of um, glossed over if you're moving through to get to this argument that he is God's Messiah and his king. I haven't seen the recent seasons, but um, that series, The Chosen, that I think they just released the last season as a movie in the theaters, or it's about to, something like that. If you've seen these, they're, they're pretty great. They're pretty interesting um, uh, dramatic takes uh, on film of Jesus and his ministry. And one of the things I do like about it is that it, make, it really emphasizes his humanity in a really good way. They give silly jokes and stuff there uh, between Jesus and his disciples. And I like the way that they had um, shown this. Because scenes later, you, you get to see how understandable and ordinary the callings of the disciple are. In later scenes, they're following Jesus around, but they're kind of like going, what the heck is a fisher of men anyways? I don't think I understand what he meant by that, right? It's really important to um emphasize his humanity because I want you to hear this morning, our spiritual connection with the divine, this power that comes to give you personal growth, these eyes that are open to behold the holy, to partake in lasting truth and goodness and beauty and unity, the kingdom of God, the gospel, yes. This is a wild, daunting, untamable, risky adventure into the unknown. It's truly an adventure at sea and land, in this case, with Christ the captain. And yet... This divine activity and experience will usually come to us in very ordinary ways. Ways in which they're so ordinary to us that they may seem to, we may, we may mistake the ordinary for just being ordinary. We may not see that God is actually at work doing extraordinary things through our ordinary experience. So think about this. They were fishermen. He went to their place of work. They're fishing. This is what they knew. 
One commentary puts it this way, Peter, Andrew, James, and John had been fishermen prior to their calling, so to them, the idea of a dragnet was a familiar and vivid picture. Their work entailed using a net, a dragnet, of great length, weighted by lead and designed to sweep the bottom of the sea, gathering fish in masses. Two boats would drag this net between them, sweeping a section of the Sea of Galilee, after which the sailors would haul the net to shore, and there the fishermen would go through the entire net, keeping the good fish, but often burning the substandard ones in order to avoid catching them again later. See, in one respect, when Jesus calls us, it's not some dehumanizing bug zapper kind of experience, right? It's often really ordinary. He goes to them in their place of work. They know how to fish. They've been doing it every day for a long time. But they'd also watched and heard a plain-looking visitor from a few towns over, just like them in nearly every way, teach and talk about this familiar message, the good news of God, one of many rabbis. Yeah, there was something a little more compelling and strange about this rabbi, especially when he spoke at the synagogue. He spoke differently than the rest of them. But still, he's a human. He's one of the rabbis. He's one of the teachers and preachers that comes through. They slowly start gossiping and trading notes, and they get a little more intrigued. Some of them start to think, well, maybe it's time for a graduate degree. Maybe I don't want to be a fisherman forever. Maybe I want to go back to school. Maybe this Jesus guy's school would be really exciting. That's what it meant to be a disciple, to go to school with a certain teacher. It's two pairs of brothers first. He comes to them as families. He uses their natural relations. He lets their family trust, reinforce their decisions, making it easier for them to choose to follow because they have a companion or a brother or a cousin. He comes to their humdrum everyday workplace where they're mending nets, they're throwing nets. He speaks to them in language they understand, fishing. Hey, that looks pretty good. You look pretty good at it. Want to come with me and fish for human beings and for souls? Their repentance involves leaving behind their family, their previous normal work, in order to follow him. They have to choose to get on the boat, to get on the journey, to cross the divides that he's going to take them across to see what's out there. They have to choose to walk behind him and with him, to study from him, to mimic him, to be shaped by his particular way of life, to be his crew on his journey, his school. And again, the school was in many respects an ordinary hands-on apprenticeship, like any trade school, with ordinary human learning lessons. His ABCs were share, give, heal, Trust, pray, love, sacrifice, die in order to live. Put yourself last in order to be first. Prioritize the poor, etc., etc. In all these teachings, they would have to change their mind again and again. Uh, you've heard it said. You've seen it done this way. I need you to repent. Think differently. Think with God's ways in mind. Leave your routine and nets. And follow me, I have nets that you haven't even seen. We have a catch you can't imagine. And it will happen as we wander through this land, and yes, across bodies of water occasionally, living out God's kingdom way of life, because it's here. That's what the good news is. The kingdom is here, and it's about to be lived out in your midst. Do you want to be a part of this crew? And this is Christianity when it's alive, when it's not just dogma. Of course, it is truth. But when it's not just dogma or ideology, when it's just not some convenient way to win politics or a Twitter war, 
But instead, when a people choose to take the risk and the adventure of repenting, of changing their mind, leaving their ordinary nets, taking what they know, and letting God use it for something more purposeful, more powerful, more adventurous, more foreign, more strange. It's wilder than a sail around the world with more surprises in store. But it's also strangely ordinary because they'd learned how to fish. Now they would have to learn how to fish human beings. And so Jesus comes to us in ordinary ways and in our everyday places. He will speak often to you through family, through friends, through people at this church. He will directly or through others tell us to constantly second guess our routine ways of thinking and our routine daily default habits, our normal aspirations. He will continue to say, the good news is here. There's this whole kingdom available to you. It's a whole journey. It's this perilous but beautiful pilgrimage. Repent. Get on board. To come up out of the water, as it were, to remind ourselves that we're baptized and to follow him into this wild and exotic new way of life. And so if you are here this morning, if you do not consider yourself at this moment a Christian, or maybe you used to and you've been away for a long while, maybe you're exploring, consider this. Consider the life that you do have. These disciples were fishermen. No doubt they dreamed of bigger catches, enough to open up maybe a little fish shack where they start selling fish and chips. That seems easier than being out on the water, right? Maybe get a nice little Adirondack chair, sit there by the fire on the edge of the Sea of Galilee, financial independence, retire early. Consider the life that you have and its ordinariness and your ordinary ambitions And do what he calls them to do, which is take their ambitions and their hopes that are ordinary and have them repurposed, not totally changed, but repurposed in a more powerful and amazing mission. They would become fishers of human beings with God. And so for you, remember or reconnect your deepest longings with God. What might he be doing with what he's already doing in your life? Whether you were a student in high school or college, you're studying, you're trying to figure out what you want to be with your life. You're in your 20s, perhaps you're starting a new serious relationship. You're in your 30s, you're building a career. You're in your 40s, you're second-guessing everything you ever did. You're, I could go on and on, right? But I'm only 40, so I'll stop there at 40, in my 40s. Take what you, where you are, bring this to God and say, how would you like to purpose this? How would you like to take my ordinary and make it part of your extraordinary? Take what I know and use it for your kingdom. This is what repentance looks like from us, for us. To look for his call to come to you in ordinary places and ordinary people through your actual roommates or your grown children or your neighbors, your friends, your family. And Christian, remember that you've been baptized. You've gone down into the sea. You've been plunged into chaos, into death, and you've been brought back out new. That your old way of life is supposed to be drowned and the new way of life is meant to be begun again and again. To turn away from our false ambitions, to leave our failures behind, to trust that it's all been washed away and that we have to leave our nets in some sense, our security, our safety, our known, to leave our nets and go with Jesus into something bigger and better. This is what Jonah was called to do. 
and failed to do, and yet God got him to do it anyways, right? Or it might be looked like this, and I'll just take a moment to make fun of myself. I'm doing show and tell. I wasn't going to do this, but Brian saw this and was like, you better do it. Uh, All of you people under 30, you won't know what this is. It's a strange, weird device. It's called a cassette tape. Um, When I was in high school, I was converted late in high school through Young Life Ministry and became a Christian. And so I did what one often does. You become a Christian, and I played music a lot with my friends. So I decided to start a band. And uh, because my friend was wearing a shirt that said, Fishers of Men, Matthew 419, on it, uh, I said, let's just call ourselves Fishers of Men. That'll be the name of our band. We'll be so cool, right? And so we were F-O-M, right? Yes, R-E-M did already exist. No, we were not as cool musically or in our font. But you can see this beautiful font. Got a big fish hook on front. The verse, Fishers of Men right here. You can take this thing and you can put it in this old cassette tape players and you can play it and sounds will come out, children. It's amazing. In this case, these sounds, though, are terrible. Because I wrote it with two friends. We wrote 12 songs in one week. We went in with $500 that someone gave us to record all day in one day. And so we took whatever take we could get and put it on here. And I forgot to mention that we were three lead singers with three rhythm guitarists, acoustic. So no... We do not have a cassette player in the building, and no, you are not allowed to listen to it. And no, no one, there was no mass conversions through this. We did get to play through college and go to little places like Abilene Christian University and play at their cafeteria at lunch and certain, you know, pancake parties that some ministry would throw at someone's backyard. It was fun. Now, I like to make fun of myself. I hate that version of myself. You show me old pictures, it's like embarrassing. I was hoping you would be embarrassed for me as I showed that to you. But in my new convert zeal, I think that impulse was beautiful. I didn't have to have it all figured out. I knew how to play the guitar and sing and write songs with my friends. And so now we were trying to do it in such a way that God would use it. And I think he would have used it even if we weren't making quote-unquote Christian music. But at the time, that was my choice. That was the way I wanted to express my love for God. And so I want to encourage you. In your ordinary life, your place of living, your city, your neighborhood, your apartment, in your ordinariness, you're just the girl or guy next door, ordinary, and yet you start to live just a little bit differently. You start to repent and follow Jesus and see that your life has a bigger purpose than just what you can give it, that your identity belongs to God and part of your identity is to be this fisher of human beings with him, that in everything you do, whether it be a business deal or cleaning diapers, or going with a migrant family to cook food in our kitchen so that they can sell it to people, or fixing up a patch, you know, here in the building, or writing a check, or spending time listening to a workmate when they're going through something difficult. In all of these ordinary ways, God will take you and use you and make it a part of his adventurous kingdom, especially when you are crossing boundaries, especially when you are crossing boundaries divides, especially when you take the parable of Jonah and say, we get it. God's mission will go forth regardless, but I want to go forth, not because a whale had to swallow me up and force me to go there and pout the whole time, but because I delight to follow Jesus in crossing divides and boundaries and seeing what what ordinary things are out there, but also what extraordinary things I can learn from other people and from their treasures that they bring into the kingdom. Remember that passage? That's the glory of God's people is that all the nations will bring all of their riches into God's people. There's more treasure out there waiting 
if we will go share the love of God in Christ with the world. These are all the ordinary ways in which God brings the extraordinary kingdom into our midst. And he usually uses us where we are, with what we know, with our ordinary, given new purpose, and set on a journey toward the extraordinary. These disciples, some of them, literally, James, John, Andrew, they would end up preaching and dying in places like Jerusalem, Samaria, the ends of the earth, modern Spain, modern Greece, modern Turkey. How foreign was that to them at the time? This is where they went and preached and shared the love of God and the kingdom came. And so, trust God in this. In your small prayers, your small words, little notes, little deeds, they all matter. Again, listening, repairing, whether you're building your land holdings or even building your business, God comes to us and says, right here I can use you in my kingdom. And they can all be a sign of God's kingdom. I think, just in a bit of closing here, it means for us that we can never just be business as usual people. We can't ever fully settle down into this world in the sense that the ordinary is all that there is, Right? Our goal can never end at owning an apartment in Brooklyn or fame or fortune as our highest catch that we work for in life. No, we have to prioritize God's work of love and redemption and his kingdom to leave our own little nets for the kingdom dragnet that is bringing in people from every tribe and language and nation. And this could mean so many things. It doesn't necessarily have to be extreme. It could be ordinary things like not working on a Sunday and following Jesus to church as you have done this morning. It could mean carving out space in your calendar for free time so that you're available to spend it on other Christians and those in need. It could mean you occasionally give up a little bit of self-care time for serving the needy. It certainly means we can get creative. If you go fishing, you know that's a lot of creativity is in knowing when and where the fish are and what season it is and what kind of lure works in this uh, conditions. If you're fly fishing, you don't know if it's a dry fly or a wet fly. We need to be creative in thinking of the ways that we can be a church of welcome, worship, and witness in this place for this time. And to also know that there is a sense of urgency, and I close with this, that God's call to love is more urgent than anything else we do. He says, hey, the thing I most want you to change your mind about is that the time is now. The alarm just went off. The kingdom is here. There's an urgency to it. There is never too soon to go fishing. But it can be too late, right? The good fishing is almost always in the morning, first thing. And Jesus said, man, the time is here. Let's get going. You have to make your decision. Are you coming with me or are you staying here? In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And so there is a sense we are to live lives of urgency when it comes to the kingdom. Prioritizing his fishing over everything else. Or maybe better said, in everything else that we do. Sometimes it means laying down a career, but sometimes it means staying in one. The question is always, am I prioritizing the urgency of following God today in everything I do? My ordinary and occasionally in the extraordinary. Because God loves us. If you take away nothing from everything else I said, just hear this in closing. God is the great fisherman. 
He's the one seeking out the lost. He's the one baiting the world with his love. He is the one sending his son out across the divide into the nations. He's the one that is drowned so that we might receive life and be carried through to the other side of his presence, this better shore. And so is his love and his mission growing in our hearts, his love and his desire for the nations to know him and to be with him. When you engage in the ordinary business of your life, can you engage in a way in which you're not landed here? It's not just your net. Instead, you're a part of God's great dragnet. To understand that we are passing through this life, we have no permanent land. Instead, we are like a boat on the water, casting the net of God's love into the kingdoms and streets and cubicles of this world, trusting that the master fisherman is guiding the boat and our hands because he came to fish for you. He crossed the divide from heaven to earth, from holy to unholy. He took on flesh. He reconciled all. He's sharing and spreading God's kingdom of love, healing and teaching, one fisherman at a time, because you are his great catch, or rather you are part of his great catch. And what he catches you, you get to fish with him. Friends, this morning again, will you reflect in a moment, even during the offertory and then as you leave today. What has God already given you and doing in your life that you can now give to him? You can repurpose in his kingdom for something more powerful and more beautiful. It's probably ordinary. It may not feel amazing to you, but he can take who you are and what he's done in your life to take you on a great adventure, to take you out to sea and to see the world come into his kingdom. This is the dignity he's given you. And so let's rejoice together in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.